Amen. Amen. If we are looking at our first gift, it's going to be given to us over in verse number eight. For to one is given the, by the Spirit, the word of wisdom. That's what you see there. And we began to pick up on that on Tuesday, the word of wisdom. In that same line, the apostle under inspiration of the Spirit also says, and to another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. So the way the construction is laid out is the Spirit of God is sovereign in giving the gifts. This is what we talked about. So you and I don't choose the gifts. They're given to us by God. Uh, The other thing is that you'll notice in the verse what Paul is doing is demonstrating that it's one spirit giving gifts to individuals severally. If you look at the construction and that's important for to one is given and then to another is given. So he gives one this gift, another that gift and another, yet another gift as well. But he keeps using the phrase, and yet it is one spirit doing it, one spirit doing it. He's emphasizing the unity of the body of Christ in its diversity of expression as it serves under supernatural impulses. What do we mean by that? Our subject is the spirit of God. We are talking about spiritual things, and we are talking Okay. All right. So um, if you look again at the verse carefully, because what I wanted to drill down into is when we begin to talk about gifts and their manifestations, what we are doing is seeing an extra special. And what that would mean is that you and I are believers in Christ, but it's not really yet manifest what we are to be. So there's a physical dimension to our existence, but there is a deeper, more profound and lasting and eternal dimension to our existence as well, which is not yet what? Manifest, not seen, not observable with the naked eye. Watch this. Beloved, now are we the sons of God? And John is emphasizing we're sons of God right now. However, it doth not yet what? That's our word. It doth not yet manifest itself to be so what we shall be. But we know that when he shall what? That is the word again. When he shall appear, when he will be manifested, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So we do right now wait for the manifestation of Christ, do we not? And the world is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's what Romans 8 is saying. So there's a sense in which we are here and, and yet there's a sense in which we are not manifest. It can be a real sense in which the spirit of God is constantly operating in the world because he does uphold all things in the very physical and, uh, and natural sense of things. But there's a sense in which the spirit of God shows up, particularly in the body of Christ, to exhibit a much more concrete evidence of his existence. And that's what we're talking about by way of gifts, you guys. So here's another composite I want you to get as we drill down in. As we go to talking about the gifts of the spirit, what we're going to be talking about are really messianic traits, the messianic traits of Christ. So conceptualize Christ working through his body, the church, and conceptualize him doing through his body, the church, the same things he did in his own physical body when he was here. Did that make some sense? It's really important to capture that. So the third person is about to take his cosmic body, his ecclesiastical body, 
all of its members and infuse it with the spirit of Messiah so that the spirit of Messiah can work through the body on a universal level, showing up and manifesting the spirit the same way Christ manifested the spirit. So when Christ announced in Matthew chapter four, repent for the what? Kingdom of God is at hand. The only way the people would have known the kingdom of God was at hand was by the manifestation of the spirit. Without the manifestation of the spirit, that would have just been an empty proclamation. Does that make sense? Right. The kingdom of God is at hand. Prove it. And this is one of the reasons why constantly you were having the Jews say to Jesus, show us a sign. So now what I want to talk about is the relationship between the manifestation of the spirit and the three categories we talked about before. I just want to reiterate the manifestation of the spirit is showing up in three ways. Sign gifts, salvation gifts, and then what? Sanctification gifts. Those three categories you want to keep in mind because... Those three categories are the way Christ is going to work in the world through his body to bear witness to himself. Not everyone is going to be saved, but all for whom Christ wants to bear record of his existence will see signs. Now, the signs are designed to draw you in order that salvation might be obtained. And if that does occur, as we're going to demonstrate, then you being drawn by signs leading to salvation will necessarily follow in a life of what? Sanctification. That's how that works. That's just how that works. And we'll see and be able to bear that out in a moment. In fact, you you can know that's the argument because what I'm asserting is that when Messiah comes, will anyone do more miracles than these? That's his assertion, right? And those miracles are designed to lead men and women to a recognition of the reality of God and a recognition that they need Messiah. So as we are talking about how that how that whole concept works, John chapter three, verse 17 and 18 will also give us just a bit of that. You know, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world. Listen to John three seventeen. For God sent not his son into the world to what? Condemn the world. So Messiah had a purpose when he came. He came to establish the certification signs of who he was for to bring about salvation and that salvation bringing men and women into a concrete relationship with God at the sanctification level. Does that make sense? All right. The sign is designed to, but not always, lead to what? The sign ultimately is the cross. The cross is the grounds for our salvation, right? That salvation will lead to a relationship with Christ, whereby with the spirit of God in our life, he is now sanctifying us unto glory. No other sign shall be given this generation, but the sign of Jonah and the whale of the belly, right? Three days and three nights, the son of man is in the heart. That is what is called a mega sign. So he came to live, die, and rise again. Is that not a miracle? That is the miracle of all miracles, and it's designed to lead to what? Salvation. So we're getting ready to see that on a much more macro, micro level. 
the concept of the word of wisdom for us will have three categories. I talked about it on Friday. How do I know I'm operating out of the gift of the word of wisdom? One is the word or words, logos, that will be being employed. That means it's communication. That means it's dialogue. That means it's relationship. How do I know I'm working out of the gift of the words, word of wisdom? That word that God is going to produce through me to others is going to build them up. The words of wisdom build up. I want you to capture that concept because I want us to be able to make a distinction between the words of wisdom and the words of what? Knowledge. They are going to be distinctly different, though they are going to share sort of a coupling of purpose and design. We're going to see explicitly the difference between the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. So when we talked about the words of uh, wisdom, I share with you Ecclesiastes 12:11 because that same construction is there. The words of the wise are like goads and nails. What do goads do? They direct back onto the course. What do nails do? They hammer into the structure or superstructure or infrastructure of the building so as to edify and build up. The words of the wise are goads and as are as goads as nails fastened by the masters of what? Right. The scholars of the building project. Assembly is building project like the Old Testament, the assembly of the temple. I gave you that example on Tuesday. The first time that the word wisdom is used, makma in our text, makka in our text, is concerning the two wise men that began the process of building the tabernacle in the wilderness. Okay, I gave unto them the spirit of wisdom. That's what God said. And so they were capable of taking the material, which I'm going to talk about under knowledge, and actually constructing the temple temple or tabernacle that God had given to Moses. So then my argument is that when we are gifted with the word of wisdom, we are gifted with that word that helps build people up. Would you agree with that? Right. And so I would argue um, for a substantiation of that that um, sort of interpretation, general interpretation, Proverbs. Proverbs is full of the idea of wisdom and it's full of the idea of edification. I think we can look at Proverbs chapter 14, look at Proverbs 19. Let's just go to a couple of them just to establish the distinction. And then I'm going to show you an example because we were there. I'm at Proverbs chapter 14, verse one. Look at what it says. Every wise woman does what? Builds her house. That's because she's wise. So what is wisdom but the proper application of what? Knowledge, information. So when a person is wise, they actually demonstrate the capacity to use words in a way that builds up. Now look at how the next line serves as a contradistinction. But a foolish woman does what? plucks down her house. So a fool and a wise person are your sort of a sort of your contrasting parallels in the book of Proverbs, right? Either we're a fool or a wise person. So a fool says in his heart, there is what? And if that's the case, then that fool can never be wise because God himself is the epitome of wisdom. And if you don't have God, you cannot ultimately be wise. Right. So when the text says every woman builds her house, this is describing the true believer in the context of giftedness, helping to bring the body of Christ into edification. 
edification means to build up. Would you agree with that? Edification meaning to build up means that wisdom is actually now functioning from a motive of love. It's functioning from a motive of love. So our words are going to be employed in a way of edifying people because the motive is going to be rooted in love because love edifies, whereas knowledge by itself merely does what? It's destructive. So when we talk about the word of wisdom, it's going to demonstrate itself a little bit more practically in a moment in two ways. It serves to build up. It serves to give guidance. It serves to correct. And of course, correction and guidance is all about building up as well. Um, look at Proverbs chapter, I think it's going to be 24. I'm just uh, thinking off the top of my mind right now one more time just to uh, give you an idea of that. We could run through a lot of Proverbs. I'm in verse 3 of chapter uh, 24. Are you there? And I'm going to show you how consistently both in the old and the new the word wisdom and knowledge is used. That's why I'm going to just deal with those two qualities, those two gifts right now. But we might get to the, um, the gift of faith, because it's there as well. Look at verse three. Through wisdom is a house what? That's a repeated principle, is it not? A repeated principle. Through wisdom is a house built, and by understanding is it established, and by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant what? Riches. So here you get a hierarchy of categories, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, but you also see them working together in a very beautiful collaborative to not only build the house, but furnish the house. Let's make an application then. If we're talking about um, what it truly means to be wise, as Proverbs says, as around Proverbs 20, a couple, two or three times, he, he that winneth souls is what? All right. So to be truly wise is to have the capacity to reach men and women with the gospel unto salvation. To be truly wise is to be engaged in word dialogue and communication with people that leads them to Christ. That's ultimately what we're dealing with. So when you and I are talking about wisdom, you and I are not merely talking about like a cerebral capacity for actually uh, figuring out complex things. Even when we use the word wisdom in the context of mystery, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but we speak this wisdom in a what? Mystery. We're not talking about simply highfalutin concepts being able to be held in our minds or theories that we are able to put together that are so um, sophisticated and so complex that we have to ask the experts to help us understand it. What we're talking about is simply having access to the spirit of God by which the gospel through us works in a way of bringing salvation to people. Right. If we speak this wisdom in a mystery, we're simply speaking this wisdom through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And so when our language is being used to bring wisdom to men and women, doesn't it follow that what we're going to be doing is help bring them closer to Christ? closer to God, right? So this is what I want you to capture. The, the pragmatics of the word of wisdom is that it's designed to build up. You're going to see it running through a lot of categories. You're going to always see both in the old and the new that if there are a coupling of the word wisdom and knowledge, wisdom will precede knowledge. Not to say that they don't have overlapping significances. They do. But as we have used around here for years, wisdom is the proper application of what? Knowledge. 
Right. That's why we're going to be going to that one shortly. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all present, uh, pleasant and precious riches. So uh, the second category of wisdom that I want you to see as we make our way to the New Testament is that not only does wisdom build up, not only does wisdom build up, but wisdom also has the capacity to if we're not if we're. Well, Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians 2, and I want us to go there as well, 1 Corinthians 2. There is a kind of wisdom that, if we're not careful, has the capacity to deceive. Does that make sense? There's a kind of wisdom that has the capacity to deceive. The question was raised on Tuesday. What does Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, I did not come to you with the wisdom of words? That's verse 2. First uh, Corinthians. Are, and all, there you go. We can start at verse one. We'll see it again in verse three. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come to you with excellency of what or of wisdom. So what he's doing is now making a contradistinction between phrasing and its influence to draw you emotionally and content of words that have the capacity to bring you to Christ. I want to make sure you get those two categories separated. Phrasing and rhetoric that has the uh, design and purpose of drawing you emotionally, spellbinding you or bringing you into captivity. Right. Because the devil uses words to bring men and women into captivity, does he not? Right. In fact, we saw the first time in a different use, the term wise used in Genesis 3, 1 with the serpent. So there is a wisdom of the world that does not bring you to Christ. It is a wisdom that tears down. It is the wisdom of fools and is the wisdom that deceives. So here's what Paul is saying. I did not come with that carnal, earthly, sensual wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. Look at verse three. It's going to be verse three and four. For I determined to know nothing, but, but uh, go back to verse two. This is, again, is the adumbration. For I determined to know nothing among you except the ultimate sign, right? The ultimate sign, right? Which is the cross of Christ. And we understand that ultimate sign is going to be the pinata that opens the door for all of the gifts that we are able to execute for God's glory, the cross work of Christ. We're going to be forced to go back there. But look at verse three and four. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I like that in this sense that what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth is whatever was commendable about me to you was not the eloquence of my words or the boldness of my speech or the presence of my stature. All of those would be part of the kind of carnal minded attraction components that would draw ignorant women and men to be deceived by the huckster who knows how to speak well. Did that make some sense? Right. You got that going all throughout history. Right. The 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 flatterer who flatters with his mouth. And so what Paul said was, first of all, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech. And we know that because his detractors said in Second uh, Corinthians chapter uh, uh, three, I believe his words are weighty in letter, but he is contemptible in presence. What that indicated to me was if you met Paul in person and heard him speak, you might not be feeling all that jazzed about him. 
because he wasn't coming with the external sort of lure of your polished professional politician. All right, it's very important for us to get. What does that mean on the part of you and me? You and I are listening for a kind of content that exalts God and draws us to him. We're not listening for the serenity or exuberance or the oration of words that makes us feel a kind of way. We are listening for truth propositions that bring glory to God and they necessarily compel us towards God. That makes sense, right? All right, so that's good. So again, notice what he says. I love this. He says, in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of what? Man's wisdom. So we want to be careful to understand the difference. Man's wisdom. But in, here's another way to put it, manifestation, demonstration of the spirit. And of he's going to use the word power because you can't get away from power. That term power, dunamis, is everywhere in the scriptures associated with the efficacy of the Spirit of God, okay? You're not going to get away from it. You'll see what I mean as we make our way. There's another category I want to bring to the table, uh, finally, under the word of wisdom that I think will be helpful for us. The word of wisdom builds up. Man's wisdom will distract. It will detract. It will manipulate you and deceive you. You've got to watch out for it. But also, the word of wisdom is designed to be a defense, It's a defense against deception. You would agree with that. It's a defense against deception everywhere in the Proverbs as well. Ecclesiastes speaks of wisdom as a defense. I'm going to show you an example of it in Luke chapter 21. If you will, I'm in Luke 21 verse 14. So how do I know a person is operating out of the um, word of wisdom, they are able to build up and lead men and women into a more concrete and, uh, and uh, vivid knowledge of God, and it compels them to, um, to know Christ better. They are able to actually avoid the kind of trappings that comes with carnal wisdom because they know it actually avails nothing But they also have the capacity by the word of wisdom to defend the truth claims of the gospel against assault. The word of wisdom. Listen to how Paul puts it or Christ puts it here. He says in verse 14, telling the disciples, you guys are going to be challenged for being my disciples. As you go forth to share the word of God, settle it in your hearts. Settle it, therefore, in your heart, not to meditate before what you shall answer. Do you see that? All right, so I don't want us to get stuck on this ground. I do want you to understand and extract the principle that comes from it because many, many people have made a wrong application of this. There are whole denominations that have operated out of taking this as an extraction and making it a kind of hermeneutical or homiletical principle. What that means is they don't study their Bibles. They don't understand precept upon precept. They don't know how to actually do legitimate hermeneutical studies. They're not expository in their preaching and their teaching. They just get up and ad hoc fashion, feel like the spirit of God is moving them and they get to running off at the mouth. Did that make some sense? We've had that in the African-American community forever where people just say, I'm just waiting on the spirit to give me something. Give me something, Holy Ghost. Give me something. Well, no word in is no word out. I can tell you that now. You can get a bunch of foolishness in and a bunch of foolishness out, but the servant of the Lord does not meet the Holy Ghost at the uh, podium. 
He meets the Holy Ghost in his study. That's where you meet the Holy Ghost in your studies. You meet the Holy Ghost in prayer. You meet the Holy Ghost in the rigor of laboring in God's word. And you'll know that that person has met the Holy Spirit in their studies because their studies will actually be edifying when they come forth. No presence of the Spirit in the study. No presence of the Spirit in the proposition at the level of teaching or preaching. Did that make some sense to you guys? Very critical. What is to be stated publicly should be reflected in the private labors of the soul, right? And that's going to be uh, evidence in terms of being able to defend against falsehood and accusations. Notice what he says. Uh, do not meditate what before, uh, do not meditate before what you shall answer. Literally is saying this, make sure you are depending upon the spirit of God as you communicate truth in relationship to the context in which you're dealing, dealing with it. But be prepared. Look at the next verse, because the next verse will speak to this. For I will give you a what? I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay or resist. So what this is, is a word of wisdom that cannot be controverted. It's a a word of wisdom that cannot be overcome. It cannot be brought into captivity. It cannot be refuted. Um, And one definitely needs that grace when you're dealing with a community of people who want to um, disavow what you have to say. Immediately, we are thinking about Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Acts 6 and then 7. Acts 6 and then 7, right? Because what Stephen is doing is giving a historiography of the redemptive work of God in Christ that's going to so rebuke the real rulers is that they're going to gnash upon him with their teeth and kill him for his claims that Jesus is the Lord and that Jesus is the Christ. Nevertheless, he is not overthrown, is he? Even though he dies for the gospel, they still weren't able to overthrow him, were they? So then here's what you need to know about the word of of wisdom as well. When we're talking about operating out of the gift of the word of wisdom, we're talking about edifying. We're talking about building up. We're talking about avoiding deception, not employing carnal measures to manipulate people. But we're also talking about being able to take hits for Christ the same way Christ did, the same way the apostles did. And the outcome of you suffering for Christ will actually prove that you are a child of wisdom. Did that make some sense? Right. It will actually prove that you're a child of wisdom. So I want you to be able to think this one through as we move into our next set of um, gifts. If the spirit of wisdom, if the spirit of Christ is working in me to to set forth the word of wisdom, it might mean I'm about to suffer for the truth that I'm sharing. Did that make some sense? It, It might mean I'm about to suffer because fools hate wisdom. That's what the proverb says as well. And so you try to share wisdom with people and you might get a blot to yourself. But you're not going to be overthrown. That truth you're communicating is not going to be dismantled. It's not going to be proven faulty. It's simply saying 
that you and I are privileged to experience the Messiahship of Messiah, who himself not only prevailed by words of knowledge and words of wisdom and words of understanding, but he also suffered for that truth. All right, go back to Isaiah chapter 11. I want you to see it again. This is what I am asserting. These are messianic qualities that show up coextensively in the body of Christ. I'm at verse one of uh, Isaiah 11. I'm going to go through verse three and you're going to pick it up. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. We talked about that last Sunday. Did we learn something about the rod last Sunday? We should have, right? That, that rod is the authority that God gives, particularly the male species who operates messianically to establish and plant growth in the family. Y'all got that? That was Jesus out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now listen to what it says. And the spirit of the Lord shall what? Rest upon him. Now, was that not fulfilled in a vivid physical way at Jesus' baptism? Matthew chapter four made it very clear. Chapter three made it very clear, 16 and 17. And the heavens opened up and the father spoke. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the third person descended upon him and remained upon him. So the goal of the third person is actually to bring to reality in our heart the second person. That's why he remains on Christ, to bring Christ to us. Now notice what he says, the spirit of what? The spirit of what? Wisdom. Are y'all reading y'all? Are y'all reading it? Are y'all reading it? Listen to what it says. The spirit of wisdom. We already got the top and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom. That's what I mean. The order is consistent. I can show you over and over the spirit of wisdom. God is our wisdom. He's the composite whole of understanding. He is the infinitude of comprehensive reality. Knowledge are simply sort of categories and tools that underbed that wisdom. We're getting ready to deal with that when we deal with the second gift. But the spirit of wisdom rested on Christ and the spirit of understanding rested on Christ and the spirit of counsel rests on Christ and the spirit of might rests on Christ. Here it is. And the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Those are all messianic qualities. Those are all messianic qualities. And any, if not all of them, could rest on you and me any time that God wants to minister to someone. Just in your own time, look at them and meditate upon them. If the spirit of God comes upon you, he can give you insight to speak in a way of wisdom that builds people up. He can give you insight to speak in a way of wisdom that grants a person understanding, right? If you can explain things to people, are you not building them up? Of course you are. The spirit of going back, please don't move, please. The spirit of counsel and of might. So now what is counsel but clarification of complex things in people's minds that help them organize in order to liberate them, in order to correct them, in order to build them up? Now, like never, we need counsel, do we not? So, so can you imagine this as part of the function? I want you to keep in mind as we work through this, the function of the Spirit of God in the members of the body. One of the, one of the most frequent things we are doing with one another is counseling each other. One of the most frequent things that we're doing is counseling. Some of us are counseling more than others, but I can't imagine 
us not being in a situation where God uh, can never use us to bring wisdom and counsel to someone. Does that make some sense? Right. We should be available to that end because, again, it's the spirit of God that's doing that. And to the degree that you and I are growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, we are going to grow in that wisdom that will allow us to help people have an understanding and get insight and get clarity on their conundrums and nudge them back in the path. Remember, the words of the wise can goad you back on the right path. Oh, that's counsel. And I love the way he puts it. It's counsel and what? What what Paul is going to let you know in a minute is you can't escape power. These are power dynamics. Words of wisdom is a power dynamic. Words of knowledge is a power dynamic. Words of counsel is a power dynamic. How edifying it is when you actually hear God speaking to you through someone that gives you an epiphany on something that you need. Those are all power dynamics. Never forget it. And I thank him that he closes out by using the term the spirit of knowledge and of the what of God. Right. And that goes right back to the idea of utterly depending upon our God as the grounds of our operation. We do what we do because we depend upon God to work through us. So if you could if you can imagine two sides of it, the outcome the outcome, the, what happens in terms of just naturally walking with God and the premise for it, the things that proceed it. That's my fellowship with God. My communion and fellowship with God merits the possibility of me being used by God to be a blessing to somebody. So the emphasis is not on me, really. And we're going to see this in our third category. So I want to go to the words of knowledge for a moment and, um, and, and, uh, and, and deal with that. But can I just kind of close with one thing? The building up the avoiding deception and the defense of wisdom, the words of wisdom will simply be summed up in the term Christ. Christ is our wisdom. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18. Then I want to look at verse uh, verses 18 through 24 and then verse 30. I want to sum it up. It can easily be said that Christ is the wisdom of God. Would you agree with that? All right. For the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness, but unto us which are being saved, which are present tense, is being saved is the what? Power of God. So the, the power of God now is going to be a driving factor, always is present with the Spirit of God. Look at the following verses, verse 19 and following. For it's written, I will destroy the what of this world? The wisdom of the wise and bring to naught the understanding of the prudent. So here we have now a battle between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. That's where you and I are. Verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? What I was getting at when Paul says, I came to you not with the wisdom of the world. I'm not coming to you with all of that jargon because God is counting the wisdom of the world to be what? Foolish. Verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, so God does have a wisdom, the world by wisdom, what? Knew not God. It was God's wise design and decree that the world be put in a position where it does not know him. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that are believing. Do you see that? So what, what we have now is a kind of oxymoronic, oxymoronic paradox going on. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God and the wisdom of God is foolishness with the world. We see that everywhere we go. 
And that pleases God. I'm going to say it one more time. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And God has decreed that battle. He loves to bring to naught the wisdom of the world by foolish things. And of course, we already know where this is funneling, do we not? The foolish things are the preaching of the gospel, the cross of Christ. And this is something that you and I need to really grapple with. God loves the fact that the gospel is viewed as foolishness to the world because this is how he confounds them. It's important for you to know. Look at verse 22. For the Jew require a what? They had one. They still rejected it. The Greeks seek after wisdom, right? They have it too in Christ and they still reject it. So you see God's sign and God's wisdom is rejected by the world, is it not? Notice what he says. Uh, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. So that's their response. God's wisdom is foolishness. Now look at verse 24. Here it is. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it's summed up by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Look at verse 30. This is a summation of it. We're getting ready to move forward. Um, it's really important whenever you and I are talking about the idea of wisdom, that we make sure that we cap that conversation off with a compendium and that is to say wisdom actually is best understood as personified in Jesus. Like, because you can talk about wisdom in terms of like grammar and, and etymology and, and, and cognate words that go along with the idea of wisdom. But really, wisdom in its summation is Jesus. That's really important because if you and I actually believe that the worlds were made by him, then we must know that he is the source and essence of all wisdom. And that if we wanted to make a beeline to telling somebody what wisdom is, just go, wisdom is Jesus. Right? Like if you just didn't want to waste a whole lot of vocabulary, wisdom, Jesus. Right? I mean, that's what he says himself. I, wisdom. I, Wisdom, ego I me, I am God's wisdom. I actually believe that, do you? But of him are you in Christ, who of God is made unto us, what? But, are you, but, but, of, but of him, that is Christ, but of him, the Father, are you in Christ. So who put us in Christ? The Father. So I want to get this line straight before we go so some of y'all can have a real handle on this. Only reason you're in, in Jesus is because the Father put you there. You didn't put yourself there. Your decision for Jesus doesn't put you in Jesus. Got to help some of you. Your decision for Jesus doesn't put you in Jesus. By the time you decide for Jesus, you didn't already been decided by God. You late to the election. I mean, it's okay. You can go around and tell everybody, I have decided to follow Jesus. And you're right. We're going to do that. But it's late. He didn't already decided to hunt you down. And bring you into his bosom. By the time you wake up, he didn't already sign the contract. You're his, right? Am I making some sense? It's very important. So of him, that is God, are you in Jesus, who is also of God? Is Jesus of God? Yes. Very much so. And we believe that, don't we? Yes. 
who of God is made unto us. Now notice that construction there because it's speaking to the way in which Jesus becomes for us. God put us in Christ in order for Jesus to become for us. He's not this for everybody. He is this for some people. For us, because we have been placed in Christ, Christ becomes for us wisdom. Got it? All of the plenitude and broadness and fullness and beauty and splendor, the heights, the widths, the depth, the breadth of who God is in his knowledge, Jesus sums that up. Getting ready to prove that to you again as we get ready to move to knowledge. Please be patient with me. But of him are you and Jesus who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I like that quaternium there. Those four encompass the whole of your salvation, okay? So it's important for you to know that. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to show you this disorder, this taxonomy of wisdom and knowledge, and then we're going to move into our second gift, okay? So notice what it says in Colossians chapter 2. I'll start at verse 1. Colossians 2 verse 1. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you. This is Paul talking about the struggles he had for the churches in Asia Minor, of which Colossae was one of them. Colossae, Philippi, Ephesus would have all been in Asia Minor. That's why when you read Ephesus, the book of Ephesus, you read the book of Colossae, and you read the book of Philippi, there is interchangeable terminology because they were all in the same region. These letters were intercirculated to each other. Does that make sense? It would be like the church in Hayward and the church maybe like in Fremont or the church in Alameda or the church not too far away where we share common territory and common trials. And so we have one over shepherd in Paul who is writing letters to us individually, but those letters have content that overlap with these other communities because we're all going through the same thing. This is why you'll find similarity, great similarity in Philippi, Colossae, in Ephesus. Now notice what he says, for I would that you knew the great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, which is also in Asia Minor, because these are part of the seven churches of Revelation chapter two and three. Listen to it. And, and for as many as I have not what? Seen, which have not seen my face in the what? So now this is what we call uh, in verse one, a paradigm. This is a paradigm of Christ. Like our salvation is a consequence of Christ's great struggle for us. You agree with that? It was a struggle that Christ himself engaged in of which we were not there. We have yet to see Christ's face. Is that true? But what Christ would have us to know is how great a struggle he went through for our salvation. That again is the cross. That's the great sign. You and I want to know that struggle, right? What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? We want to know that struggle. That's what Paul is saying. Now, look at verse two. Here's what he says. In order that your hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement, that's both really, and the knowing comprehension of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. This is a beautiful aim and objective for understanding Paul's 
conflict. Paul's saying, I want you to know my conflict because these are the things that my whole ministry is about. It's about the body of Christ being comforted. That's the word of wisdom, right? Comforted, being knit together in love. That's edification unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. That is that that continual embedding of truth that brings you and I to a place of understanding. That's why we repeat our studies. That's why we engage in the word so we can go deep, so we can be grounded and become men and women of understanding. And notice, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, huge. We know God in the person of Christ. We are coming to know him more and more in the person of the Father, the Son, and the what? Holy Spirit and of the Father and of Christ. Now, verse three is going to sum up our transition from um, from uh, the first gift of the word of wisdom to the word of knowledge. In whom? Who is the whom? Jesus. In whom are what? Mystery. 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 Right. When it's a mystery, it means it's hid. So the full counsel of God is summed up in the person of Christ and is hid in Christ. This is where back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the world by wisdom did not know him because God's wisdom is hid in Christ. So God has decreed a battle between carnal man and God himself at the level of refuting their wisdom by affirming his own wisdom. So every time a person is saved, God's wisdom is exalted. Every time a person rejects that gospel, God's wisdom is exalted. See, it's very important to see that God wins on both ends. In whom are hid all the treasures. Here it is. Now, what is the idea of treasures? Something extremely precious, something extremely wealthy, something extremely opulent, something hard to arrive at, requiring great effort. Is that true? Yeah. Some of us know because we've cut our teeth from the beginning in the book of Proverbs. We know this. When knowledge is pleasant to your soul, you will pursue it as rubies. Wisdom will be, will be pleasant to your understanding and you will grasp after it as great treasures. So when you, when you meet that man or that person that's resolved to bore through the earth and remove all of the, uh, all of the impediments and hindrances of those precious, precious jewels, that means they are seeking hidden treasure. And see, the evidence of their knowing it is there is them going after it. And the Bible tells us Christ is the treasure of God, is he not? And we are to go after him in the same way people bust up whole mountains to get different ores and, 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 and rubies and gems and treasures in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom. There it is. So you and I get one little nugget when the spirit of God gives us the word of wisdom. Does that make sense? We get one little nugget of all of the treasures because they're in Christ, right? So we don't need them all. We just need a word. Because it's talking about conversation. All I want is a, all we want is a word of wisdom that's going to actually bless somebody's soul, as it were, great riches. All right, it's very much so. In whom are hid the treasures of wisdom and what? 
in whom are hid the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Is that what it said? It almost never reverses the order. And we're getting ready to go there for that reason. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Romans eleven thirty-three. I'm just making a point on that because it's Friday. You know, we have a great time. 30 more minutes and we'll do some Q&A. Notice what Paul says. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Nope. Is that what it said? Nope. So you see now I have raised your salience. I've helped some of you get the taxonomy. And you'll find that virtually everywhere. Knowledge becomes a servant to wisdom. That makes sense to me. Knowledge becomes a servant to wisdom. Right. And then at that point, knowledge does not hurt. Knowledge now furnishes. All right. So it's time for us to go to the second one. This one's going to be a little bit easier in the sense that I've, I've kind of broken up the follow ground around wisdom is summed up in the person of Christ. And you guys got it. It edifies, it builds up, it avoids manipulation and deception. And it is a defense. It knows how to defend itself. Wisdom knows how to defend itself. In the same verse, Paul talks about the logos of Gnosis. The word of knowledge, the logos of gnosios, the word of knowledge. This is information. This is data. This is insight. This is the way you and I understand the word of knowledge. What do we mean by the word of knowledge? We're talking about that thing which resources us with facts. That, that word that resources us with data. That word that resources us with information. That word that uh, supplies us with the necessary data for us to now function and act according to our assignments. Let me see if I can build on this. I love the way the Proverbs does this because it's beautiful. I'm going to come back to Acts 5 and show you how the word of knowledge works, but I'm going to use some Old Testament text as well. Notice what Proverbs says over in Proverbs chapter 10. I'm going to use a number of verses, and I want you to look at the um, adverbial expression around knowledge. Listen to Proverbs chapter 10. Um, uh, verse 14, Proverbs 10, 14, please. Wise men do what? Wise men do what? Lay up, lay up, lay up, lay up, lay up, store up, store up, store up, gather, gather knowledge. So see, this is about resourcing. Wise men and women store up, gather up, scoop up, bring up to them, store up knowledge. But the mouth of fools is near destruction. That's your that's your antithesis there. So wise men store up knowledge, store up data, gather the information, study to show yourself approved. Right. That's the idea of a a wise person knows they need the resources. And so they do what? They they lay it up. They 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 lay it up. Here's another verse I want you to see around that. Chapter 12, verse one. I'm going to give you about four or five in the Proverbs because I want you to see the verbal expression. Whoso loveth instruction, what about knowledge? They love knowledge. They love knowledge. There's a disposition and attitude towards knowledge that they love. Not only do they lay it up, they love knowledge, but he that hates reproof is brutish. That's another word for a what? A fool. Look again at Proverbs chapter uh, 12, verse 23. Proverbs 12, 23. I'm just going to give you a few. A few. A prudent man, a discerning man. And we're going to get to the gift of discernment, but we would call him a wise man. A wise man does what? Conceals knowledge. 
Isn't that what that says? Concealeth knowledge. Okay, so I want you to think about what's going on here. The individual that understands the benefit of knowledge uses it properly. They know how to gather it up. They know how to value it. And they also know how to conceal it. What does that mean? What they recognize is all knowledge is not necessary to be given to all people all the time. There is a distribution process that takes place with knowledge, which really is the application of wisdom, a distribution process. Stay with me. And you'll know this is true if you know your Bible. Jesus says, I couldn't tell you everything because you're not ready yet. When I go to glory, send the Holy Ghost back, I'll take you to another level. But and then Paul said to the Corinthians, I could only give you milk. You are not ready for a larger lumber. Right. So so what we're talking about is the data, the information, the resources, the facilitation of knowledge that you need in order to now make right decisions that will constitute wisdom. Here is a, uh, another one. So a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools does what? Proclaims foolishness. And we could look at that on an ethical level and, I, and I'll give it to you. Um, so we are really still talking about the mouth because we're talking about words. And since we're talking about the mouth, because we're talking about words, we're talking about our hearts. And since we're talking about our hearts, we are talking about the moral, ethical foundation of our expression. What we are talking about is whether or not you and I are fools or wise people, whether or not our heart is rooted in love or selfishness. Does that make sense? Out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speak. So let's say my heart is foolish. If my heart is foolish, it's a good likelihood my mouth is going to be foolish. If my mouth is going to be foolish, it's a good likelihood that I am not going to be speaking a word of wisdom. And maybe not even a word of knowledge. But I'm getting ready to show you that in the area of the word of knowledge, fundamental to knowledge is data gathered in a wise way in preparation for the day that that information is to be delivered. All right. Another verse. I want to I want to go through a few more. I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 13, verse 16. Chapter 13, verse 16. Every prudent man does what? Dealeth with knowledge. Ah, but a fool layeth open his folly. In other words, like the fool does not value knowledge enough to use discretion as to who he shares it with. Again, look at Proverbs chapter, um, look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 6. Proverbs 14, 6. If we have it, yes. A scorner seeketh, a scorner seeketh wisdom, and he will not find it. But knowledge is easy unto him that what? Understands. Right. He has, she has, they have a proper understanding of the benefit of knowledge. This is a powerful precept because this speaks to the hidden hand of God keeping some people from knowledge because of a bad attitude, a bad motive, a bad objective. So men and women that want to use knowledge aright, they actually will find the knowledge of God. A few more will go on. Look at uh, uh, 14 verse 7. Look at 14.7. There'll be a few more in chapter 14. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you perceive not in him the lips of what? 
Ah, so now what the believer who has come to understand how to identify both the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, when they find neither one of them in the mouth of a person, they immediately leave. They immediately um, uh, absent themselves. They now depart because if you're not getting the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge, you're getting ready to get the word of foolishness. And that will indicate a defection in your own heart, would it not? If I'm open like the fool to folly, then I'm going to be vulnerable to the deceptions of the devil. Had Adam and Eve followed this precept, we would not have fallen. All right, so a few more verses to underscore. Thank you for your, your patience on that. Look at verse 18, chapter 14, verse 18. Chapter 14, 18. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are what? I love that. Let me see if I can give you the visual before I go on, because <clears throat> I think I got you now. The word crowned literally means to surround. So when you put a crown on the head of a noble man or a noble woman, a queen, prince, princess, king, you are surrounding the crown of their head, are you not? Right, so when God crowns us with loving kindness, that's Psalm 103, verse 2, that means he surrounds us. God surrounds us with knowledge. He surrounds us with wisdom. He protects us by surrounding us. Does that make some sense? You need to get that. He has crowned us with loving kindness. If we have been crowned with loving kindness, that means you and I are protected in every way because of his love for us. That'll come home and bless you at some point. But the prudent are crowned, protected, encompassed with Knowledge. Thank you, Lord. Um, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 2, if I'm correct. The tongue of the wise, what? Uses knowledge aright. Here now you have the conflation of the data and its application, right? So the tongue of the wise, wisdom, useth knowledge aright. Application. The tongue of the wise, wisdom, useth knowledge aright. Application. This is why we have contracted it down to this proposition. What is wisdom? The right application of knowledge. So that's very helpful. But the mouth of fools, there it is again. He opened his mouth like a dump truck, just hit the lever and everything pours out, right? Indiscriminately. I just want you to know. So these verbs, these verbal expressions to seek, to lay up, to store up, to hide. I love this one, Proverbs 17, 27. We're getting ready to move into some examples and shut down. Notice what Proverbs uh, 17, 27 says. He that hath knowledge does what? There it is. See it? So the person that has knowledge knows that he's to deal his words with discretion. He spares his words. He doesn't waste them. They're too valuable. He's not trying to mull over people. So when you meet a wise person, they're going to be very deliberate in the way they phrase, in the way they speak. Does that make sense? Right. He that hath knowledge spares his word, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. That is the spirit of Christ. The excellent spirit is the spirit of Christ. Please understand that. Very few people exhibit that, but it is so. So what you and I are looking at is the word of knowledge. Let me see if I can give you an example of it. Second Kings chapter five. 
I'm going to use the Old Testament passage and the New Testament word of knowledge. I'm going to kind of now vividly put it in your head. A word of knowledge when, is when God gives you data or gives you information about something uh, in your environment, in your circumstance of which it cannot be assumed. But God has given you that information. There's a situation happened between um, Elisha and his servant. Remember Naaman, the uh, leper? came to Elisha and Elisha told him to go down to the river Jordan and, and dip seven times and be, and be healed of his leprosy. Well, uh, Elisha had a protege. We're going to call him Gehazi. His name is not mentioned there, but Gehazi is a sort of precursor to Judas Iscariot. Gehazi is the person that runs with the prophet, but he is operating out of different motives. Okay. And that means that actually, though he's with the prophet, he's actually against the prophet. And because he's against the prophet, the prophet knows him, but he doesn't know the prophet. Did that make some sense? So the relationship is not one of equanimity. The relationship is one of superiority over the inferior operating out of a defense of wisdom. Remember I told you wisdom is a defense. So the wisdom of Elisha will protect him from the scandalous nature of his servant Gehazi, who is in the ministry for money. Right. So go uh, see here. All right. So that's that's verse one. The verse that I want us to look at is verse 26, Second uh, Kings 5, 26 and 27. And I want you to see the word of knowledge operating here. Here it is. Watch this. And Elisha said unto Gehazi, his servant, went not my heart with you. Now, do, do you notice what he just said? You went after Naaman. How many of you guys have never read this account before? Raise your hand if you've never read this account. Okay, there's only a few of you. Go back up to verse 22. I want to do this for our sister. Verse 22, 2 Kings 5, 20. And he said, uh, this, is, uh, this is the servant who goes to Naaman, and he runs up on Naaman, and he says, is all well? He says, all is well. My master has sent me. Now, is that true? See, morals and ethics are a real play here. My master has sent me. No, he didn't saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophet. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of raiment. So <clears throat> Gehazi is creative in his thinking, is he not? Right. And that's the diabolical nature of words that are deceptive, deceptive words, deceptive words. He's appealing to Naaman's emotional makeup, is he not? He watched Naaman say to Elijah, I'm ready to give you all kinds of gold and silver and precious stones. And Elijah said, no way are you going to go back to the king and say, I got paid for blessing you. There's no way we could go deep into that. But that's a word of wisdom. So he told him no. And then he ran off. But Gehazi's heart <clears throat> is trapped by what? Covetousness. So he comes with a machination and a scheme because he feels like all that hard work of him and Elijah, you know, seeing to it that the name, that the captain of the army of Syria is healed of his leprosy, which was a phenomenal miracle, by the way. Never, ever happening in Israel at all before. Did you guys hear what I just stated? A Gentile gets healed. 
of the very army of the nation that is hostile to the country. This healing of, of Naaman is going to actually quell the political conflict between Syria and Israel. But Gehazi is now going to interrupt that because he wants to get paid. I know he's part of the Biden family. I know that. Right? Come on, tell the truth. Right? Slid right on down to Ukraine and uh, started working for Burisma. I mean, some of us know this. Do we not know this? You may not know it, but I know it. I I love God because his word exposes men for being this kind of corrupt person. Um, Behold, even now there come two from Mount Ephraim. No, there was no one, brah. You're just lying out of both sides of your mouth like he's got dementia too, right? Just telling stories that just, you weren't there. It never happened. Verse 23, here we go. And Naaman said, be content, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and laid them upon two of his servants and they bear, be, bear them before him. So th- this boy is coming back living large, is he not? Here it is, verse 24. And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed, and bestowed them in the house, in his own house. And he let the men go and they departed. So the trap is set. Now, because Gehazi does not know Elisha, but Elisha knows Gehazi, Gehazi is now going to experience a word of knowledge. Here it is. Verse 25. But he went in and he stood before his master. That's a term that means wait on your master. And Elisha said unto him, now, where are you coming from, Gehazi? Where are you coming from? He said to his servant, uh, thy servant went, nowhere, I didn't go nowhere. You are in trouble, boy. And he said unto him, did not my heart go with you? Is that true? His heart went with him. Isn't that what Paul was saying to the Corinthians? When he said in Corinthians chapter 5, this man that has done this deed, you guys judge him and I will be with you in spirit. Remember that? Paul didn't go to Corinth. He told the Corinthians, if you actually execute the biblical protocol of holding that man accountable for fornication, adultery, I will be with you in spirit. Absolutely. He says, did not my heart go with you when the man turned again from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive what? That is called a word of knowledge. There's no way in Gehazi's mind that Elisha should have known that. That's a word of knowledge. And and I'm going to show you the difference between that and the word of wisdom in a moment. Notice what it says. Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? Listen, Elisha now has gone not only to the event, but inside the heart of Gehazi and exposed us to what Gehazi was imagining and dreaming and desiring to live large in the ministry of the gospel. Do you see it? I say ministry, M-A-N-Y, ministry, okay, of the gospel. Um, And here is the judgment. The leprosy, therefore, of Naaman shall cleave unto you and unto your seed forever. And he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. That's a word of knowledge. That's the Old, Old Testament counterpart 
to where we're going now. Who knows where we're going? Acts chapter 5. Let's go there. Here's another word of knowledge. It can only be God that had given Elisha this information. Elisha didn't go anywhere. He did not need to go anywhere. The Spirit of God is everywhere present. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro, beholding the good and the evil. You and I know that. This is, so like part of what our study must keep in mind is that a big part of being uh, gifted is simply your relationship with God. That's a big part of being gifted, meaning when you and I are in relationship with God through Christ, Christ can furnish us with these gifts and use us anytime he wants to. OK, and a gift can be used through you and you not necessarily be cognizant of it. Please understand that. Like you and I are talking about the word of what? Wisdom and the word of what? Knowledge. And I've given you some definitions of the word of wisdom. You get to now work them through. But if you discover in a scenario where God is using you to encourage, to guide, to build someone up, and it really takes on a substantial benefit in their life, you are discovering the word of wisdom working through you. It doesn't mean you're going to be using that word of wisdom with everybody you come across. Why? Because the Lord is sovereignly working as he wills through us when he wants to. Remember, you're still a sinner. So on any given day, you can be running around idle. Is that true? Broke, no work to do for the Lord, just living, you know, in the vacuum of, uh, of, of you know, the inconsistencies of our world. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Let's walk this through, sis. And kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here you go. Common people like Gehazi go out and engage in a scenario. And then they come to the authority, the servant of the Lord, whether it's uh, Elisha or the apostle Paul. Now, like uh, the apostle Peter, like Elisha, Peter was not there. There's no possible way that Peter can know, particularly at that time without texts and emails and all that, right? The Holy Ghost had to be working. Because of the specificity of the way Peter is going to speak, we're going to be looking at the word of knowledge again. And I'm going to make some, some points and then we can talk about it. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Word of knowledge. Word of knowledge. That's powerful. Like, so in our generation, um, a person that would want to perpetrate uh, an arrogant sort of frontal denial of such claim would say, who are you to judge me? Is that right? Who are you to judge me? Who are you to judge me? Right. And, and you and I would certainly be arrogant if we made that kind of proposition and it flowed from an evil heart of self-righteousness on our part. And Christians have done that. Christians can take Bible verses, lift them up like you can on a computer, staple them on your tongue and reiterate them in the wrong time at the wrong place and make yourself appear to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And you can be wrong as the devil. Am I making some sense? It's very important for you you and I to understand that Peter here is really demonstrating an unction. Peter said, Ananias, why have you, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost And to keep back part of the price, not only is he now um, articulating definitively the event, but he's now also uh, articulating the motive of his heart, just as Elisha did with Gehazi, right? So the Spirit of God is doing what he does, piercing the heart. 
This is bigger than Peter. God is speaking to Ananias, is he not? God is letting Ananias know, I saw you all the time. All right, let's keep going. Verse 4. Whilst it remained, was it not your own? And after it was so, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto who? So what we do with verse, uh, verse 3 and 4 is we make a correlation between lying to the Holy Ghost and lying to God to demonstrate that the Holy Ghost is not merely a force, but a person. Because you don't lie to a force. You don't lie to the wind. You don't lie to an it. You lie to a person. Is the Holy Ghost a person? Right, because you can lie to him. Whenever we're dealing with the triune God and we're dealing with the persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we can prove their indexing. We can prove their indexing, which is them being able to say who they are. When God can speak, I am, and Jesus goes, I am, the Holy Ghost can go, I am. This is self-indexing, okay? So the Holy Ghost does the same thing. If he's a teacher, that means he's a person. If he's a guide, that means he's a person. If he is a judge, that means he's a person. If he can convict you, that means he's a person. If he's a comforter, that means he's a person. If he's an advocate, he has to be a person because as a person, he's advocating to another person about your person. Did that make some sense? So if the Holy Spirit is an advocate with the Father, if he's an intercessor, he is, he is a person talking to another person about your person. God's not sitting there listening to the wind blow. These are persons, the person of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Raise your hand if you got that. Good, because you know that stuff can slip and it shouldn't slip. These are opportunities for us to get our, we call this theology proper, right? Our knowledge of God. Yes, the Holy Spirit is represented by the wind. He's represented by the water. He's represented by the fire. He's represented by many things. He is a person. That's a big difference. Now watch this. Verse six, five, five rather. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Right, so this information didn't do anything to correct Ananias. It didn't do anything to build him up. It basically took him out. It was a word of knowledge. And we might as well deal with his wife while we at it. Verse 6, and the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. Verse 7, here we go with, uh, you know, um, scene 2. And it was about the space of three hours after that when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. This is always profound to me. And Peter answered unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Now, see, now, can we just talk about this for a moment? I just want to ask you a question since we're almost at Q&A. Was this appropriate for the apostle to do? <laughs> help me, help me, help me, okay? I just want you to, because you know, in our generation, Peter would be condigned for being non-empathetic. He would be condigned for provoking, would he not? Peter, you know, you already know. Why you want to do that to that girl? Won't you be merciful to her? That's where we live, is it not? May I ask you, 
Is Peter not yet still operating under the spirit of knowledge? See, remember, this is a messianic quality. This is how Messiah proves his reality. That's going back to Isaiah 11, right? The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of counsel and the spirit of, not, of might and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. This is what this whole account is about, the fear of the Lord, right? Right, because if Messiah is not feared, then he's not believed. There's a whole bunch of people in this scenario that's getting ready to believe on Jesus, are they not? And Peter answered her and answered her and said, uh, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. And she said, for so much. She was trapped, wasn't she? So what had happened? Her and her husband had collaborated to perpetrate a fraud against God toward the church. And Jesus is actually in the presence by his spirit defending the integrity of the church. Because if the church can be hoodwinked by these kind of propagandists with these false claims, then the reputation will go out everywhere. Hey, man, we can rip these church folk off real easy. And that would dishonor God and it would bring into question the authority and crown rights of Christ among his people. Would you agree with that? Remember, my fundamental premise was that what the body of Christ is, is a co-extension of Jesus so that every member is operating out of the gifts of Messiah. If we are operating out of the gifts of Messiah, those gifts should be protecting us from the scams of people with maniacal objectives, should they not? If the spirit of God is present among us, I hope this is helping. Then Peter said unto them, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the what? Spirit of the Lord. So when you take verse three and verse four and verse nine, you have lied to God. You have lied to the Holy Ghost. You have lied to the spirit of the Lord. That's a try formula to say that they have lied to all three persons because they're calling Jesus Lord. They're professing to be Christians and they've lied to God. And, where, and, and so if I, if I go tempted the spirit of the Lord, we're talking about the spirit of the living God. He's called the spirit in verse six, and then he's called God in verse three. This is as intimate as you can get. Would you agree? Then Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? He is the resident Lord, is he not? Right. So, see, we can talk about this, too, because the question will be brought to bear <clears throat> How close in proximity can folks be in the context of the corporate church where they are also under the influence or at least available in some kind of non-regenerate way or non-substantial way, talking to God, hearing from God, engaging with God? These questions are valid, are they not? I can raise up again Hebrews 6, 4 and in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, 26. Um, in terms of tasting the uh, good word of God and experiencing the powers of the world to come. These are all things that in that first century were really big issues. The way I sum it up is this way, to whom much is given, much is what? Right. So, so we're, we're there now. Let me see here. So it says, behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry thee out. Verse 10. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came and found her dead, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. The word of wisdom builds up 
It's able to overcome the manipulative deceptions of the worldly wisdom. It's able to defend itself against allegations, even if it means to suffer. The word of knowledge is a set of uh, resources, data, and facts that actually works together with wisdom to exalt Christ as the all-seeing Savior, the comprehensive all-seeing Savior. You and I can operate out of a word of knowledge too, could we not? And, 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 and if we are operating out of that word of knowledge, it does not necessarily mean that this kind of outcome is coming. I'm just giving you a scenario where the word of knowledge is demonstrating itself so vividly and so clearly that the person who is the target of your discourse will have to know that God gave you that information about them. All right, I'll leave that alone. We can have some conversation about that right about now. So I need somebody to run right quick. We'll come back next week and start dealing with faith to be expressed because there's some things about faith that needs to be unpacked. And, and of course, there are plenty um, observations that we can make about the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom now. I did not comprehensively unpack it. I just share a few things around it. I'd love to hear your observations as well. Just want to touch on it and then we'll get out of here. So who has an idea? Okay, that's one person. All right, anybody else? Way over there, Miss Marlis. All right, is that, is that Mike on, sis? Come on, we can get at it. <clears throat> any, any contributory factors will be great. I'm, like I said, my ideas were not comprehensive. I just touched on a few things. Go ahead on, sis. Oh. Over here. Oh. Me? Over here, yes. PJ, hey, good to see you, PJ, tonight. You too. So Colossians 2, <clears throat> from verse 1. So acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father, and of the Holy Spirit. So how do we get there? How do we, It's a mystery. So how do we acknowledge the mystery of God? Mm-hmm. And then when Christ is manifesting himself through the word of wisdom, that it means that he knows the mystery of the Father. And my, most probably that's why now he'll, he has to separate the known from the unknown. I mean, I hope you understand what I'm saying. How else are we going to acknowledge the mystery of God and of the Father without the Holy Spirit, which is in Christ Jesus? All right, so let's go back to acknowledgement. It's not the best translation, so we want to be able to frame what that statement really means. So if we pull Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 back up, acknowledgement simply means that in our relationship with God, we are able to affirm their triunity because of the mystery being made known to us. Look at it again. I'm sorry, did you shut us down? Colossians uh, 2 verse 3. That's okay. And, And that happens. This one here happens. This is where when you are beginning to wrestle, and we all have the freedom to unpack text based upon our own experience and our resources. So what she's doing is good. I want you to get that. Um, A lot of times our English translations, and even if you knew something of Greek grammar, which I do, it does not mean that you're going to automatically have access to the right understanding of any phrase or term. It just does not mean that. So when it says here, going to uh, verse um, verse 2, go back to verse 2. When it says these words, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. That is a communal objective. Hearts together, not single heart, all of our hearts in the community. Being knit together in love, 
obviously you and I are functioning on an agape. That agape is bringing us into relationship with God. Our hearts are being knit together through a knowledge of God. Watch this. Unto all riches of the full what? Assurance of understanding. It's already happening. You are already knowing God. You are coming into a fuller understanding of him and an assurance thereby. So there's no deficit here. Paul is saying his labors are to help you understand God at a level by which the riches of God brings you and I into a state of assurance. What is assurance? That's knowing. Right. It's assurance of understanding. That means you and I are being grounded clearly in a knowledge of the gospel, which is the same as a knowledge of God to the knowing. That's really what we can say to the point of knowing the mystery. Acknowledgement of the mystery is simply your ability and mine to actually explain what the gospel is. So please understand that when we talk about acknowledging the mystery it's what what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 13 to you, it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Right. Remember, he's doing the parable of the sower in the sea, Matthew 13, by the way. And the disciples are saying, why are you speaking to everybody in parables? And he said, because it's not given to them to know. But unto you, it is given to know. And he also said in that same chapter, many wise men have desired to be right here where I am as Messiah explaining the kingdom of God to you. In other words, the disciples were way more privileged than many of the Old Testament prophets. The many of the Old Testament prophets, they knew a lot of things, but they did not know what it was like to be literally with Messiah, unpacking the scriptures, setting forth all these parables and then explaining them. But the disciples were ordained to that end as you and I are too. So remember, if Jesus says it is given for you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, Matthew chapter 13. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but we speak this mystery, this wisdom in a mystery. Then that means we're already handling the mystery, are we not? And what is the mystery? Colossians chapter one, verse 26 and 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did that make some sense, you guys? So I want to nail that down because I really appreciate my sister because I know how a lot of religious communities are around words. Mysterion is our Greek term for mystery. And generally when mysterion is described um, to people, it is described as a set of hidden sort of uh, um, uh, veiled concepts, principles and ideas that no one can really know unless God gives it to you. In the New Testament, the mystery is actually revealed. It's revealed in the person of Christ. This we know again in the book of Ephesians chapter three that it might be made known by the church. That's Ephesians chapter three, verse nine and 11. So let me line these up right quick for you here. Jesus said in Matthew 13, many of the prophets spoke of the days that would come where Messiah would come and unpack the kingdom. Well, that's what Jesus did in the first century. All the disciples were enjoying the revelation. They didn't get it in their fullness until the Holy Ghost came. But once that Holy Ghost came, look at the book of Acts. They're unpacking it, are they not? 
Everything is centered in the person and work of Christ. Paul made it very clear. He is the sum and substance of God's revelation. For us, Jesus is the personification of the mystery, is he not? And so if if Christ said in Matthew 13, I'm here to share these things. It is given to you to know. Remember what he said in chapter 14, wait for the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost will come. He is the spirit of truth. He will take the things of mine. He will show them to you. So the third person comes to take the package of the mystery and open them up to the apostles so the apostles could give them to us. So that's John 14, John 15, John 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we speak this wisdom in a mystery, not the mystery of the world, but the mystery which God has given us. And that mystery is the gospel. The gospel is the key into knowing who God is, knowing who Christ is, knowing how God works, knowing what God said in the past, what God has said in the present, what God is saying about the future. That's the mystery that's being revealed to us. And what Paul is simply doing with all these superlatives is telling us Jesus is a deep, deep treasure chest of hidden revelations that are ours to have because we are in the kingdom. We are in the kingdom. We get to enjoy the unfolding of these treasures. I wish you would have just laid it open on the text because it's important for us to visualize that long enough. I want us to, to make sure we get that. And I want, to, uh, I want to also invite you, going back to Colossians chapter uh, 2, verse 2, I want to invite you because we can probably do a, uh, we can probably find a translation across 20 of our English translations that might do a better job in that Greek word acknowledgement. Okay. I, if I recall my studies carefully, it simply means that you and I have the ability because of an assurance of understanding to be able to declare, to set forth, to know the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Now, the construction there, that that triune construction here, the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, is simply the uh, taxonomy of how God is known. God the Father is known through God the Son. All right, so you and I will not know anything about the reality of the Father except through the Son. But we won't know the Son in the fullness of his riches and treasures without that third person. Does that make some sense? Now, that third person is actually working in the first century through the apostles. This is what you love about your New Testament Bible. I want to kind of put this down as an axiom for everyone here. Apostolic doctrine is the plumb line for orthodoxy in your reading the New Testament. You don't avoid, you don't ignore, you don't get around, you don't supersede the understanding of the apostles. Because Christ gave that to them to give to us. The way we get inside the revelation of Christ, Messiah, Yeshua, Hashim, is through the apostles. Father, I have given them thy word in order that they might give it to the world. That's John 17. They are the foundation of the New Testament church. So I listen to Paul. I listen to Peter. I listen to John. And what they tell me is if I don't hear them, I'm not hearing God. So I want to help you with that. I want to tie this down because this will get into an inference of our study around spiritual things. And the inference will be this. As we're studying the gifts of the spirit. The question inevitably rises up 
but we're not going to deal with it here now. Are the gifts of the Spirit still functioning today as they did in the first century, okay? We're not going to answer that now. We're not going to fight over it. We're not going to divide over it. We're studying those gifts now, okay? Because we have a lot of church history that will talk about a position called cessationism and a position called the perpetuity of the gifts, right? That's a dichotomy. That's a conflict uh, uh, paradox. You guys see that? That's a conflict paradox. I don't think it's necessary. I know how the church works. We love to fight inside. I'm either for, I'm, or I'm against. Well, what about both and? So we'll be able to have that conversation. Would we say that the gift of the word of wisdom is still present today? I would say so. I would say the gift of the word of knowledge is still present today. I would say the gift of faith, as we're going to unpack it, is still present. I would say the gift of healing is still present. I would still say the gift of languages is still present and the interpretation thereof. And they are codified in the word of the living God for us as a model and regulatory principle. But we'll get a chance to talk that through. Right now, what we want to do is get a handle on what the Bible says about those gifts, if that makes sense. Four, I would say the spirit of God is still with us. Would you agree with that? All right, we're, we're making an assumption, aren't we? Are we making an assumption that the third person is still with us? Right. Okay. So, so we said, no, no, no. But remember what I said earlier. I said earlier that the whole purpose of talking about these categories of gifts was for the manifestation of the spirit. Isn't that what I said? Because that's what Paul is getting to. And so think about this. this. This should make you a little bit shaky. This should make you a little bit shaky because you and I want to be solid on this. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit. That's not, a, that's not a academic question. That's a very, very serious question, is it not? All right, so now let's, let's suppose we can affirm that fundamental premise that we have the Spirit of God, right? If we can affirm it with solid biblical text that we have the Spirit of God, then the second question about the gifts of the Spirit becomes almost passe. Because if I have the Spirit, it's Highly likely that I also have the gifts of the spirit. Did that come home? Right. If, if somehow we're deceived as a church in the 21st century where we don't have the third person, like somehow he's going and we're just playing church, then it would follow that we could argue that there is no word of wisdom in the church, no word of knowledge in the church, no healing in the church, no faith in the church, so forth and so on. We could say that. And the Christian has to already always be ready to be challenged with whether or not you actually truly know Christ and you have a spirit. Because Romans 8 says, if you do not have the spirit of God, you're none of his. So what I'm saying is these questions are really good questions. They're not to be played with or explained away. They are to be humbly embraced and worked through. We want to study through these things. That's the, uh, and the other reason I want to say it again for you is this. You and I should not feel like we have to know that we have gifts. We should simply ask God to help us see them when they show up. To discover them when they manifest themselves. Because we will, we will presuppose as children of God, God is going to use us. Would you agree with that? 
And, and many of us know that. We've been being used by God on so many levels. All I want us to do is be able to identify the way in which the Holy Spirit is using you in terms of the gifts that he's employing. That's all. We're not, we're not putting you on the edge as to whether or not you know how to know that you get your gifts. In some churches, they, 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 they help you try to find your gift and put your gift on and all that. Just walk with Jesus and those things will be discovered in your life as you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. Does that make some sense? All right, so I, I hope that helped my sister. Um, I, maybe next time we come together, I'll see if I can uh, do a little bit of um, exposition on that verse to bring clarity to it. Uh, Marlis, I think you're the uh, next one. A few more questions and we're out. Um, I, had, I believe that tonight you, you helped to answer a question that kind of has been on my mind for probably decades. When you, you said, um, when you were speaking about um, Peter speaking to Sapphira just before she died, and you said something about people condemning him for not being more um, uh, merciful... I think you confirmed to me something that I believe the Lord told me t tonight. Because um, I've been thinking a, a lot more about hell lately. I heard something that really shook me up. So, and I'm glad that it did. I'm very glad. Um, and I pray that I will never be unshaken by this. But I've often wondered... You know, um, if God was just too severe about having hell be forever and ever and ever and just the intensity of it. And I think what came to my mind was that the, the quality of God is so higher. He said, my ways are not your ways and as high as the heavens are above the earth are my ways above yours. And I think the only thing that has come to make sense for me is that God's goodness... Well, I, I'd like to add this, too. I used to wonder, why did he need so much praise? Because I saw that as an ego issue. This was way, 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 way back. But then I believe the Spirit told me that God is really the only good... Um, person in the universe and that is why he deserves praise but also because he is the only good person he's the only person and he controls life he's the only person who can really decide what is right and wrong and he's decided that heaven and hell are right and that's it and what I need to do is to really take this way more seriously and just ask him to help me to um, be more obedient, to take things more seriously. So my question is, is, do you think my conclusion is true about the nature of God? Is that an accurate um, perspective to have? 
Repeat that. Repeat the, uh, repeat the estimation. Is, uh, the, you mean about God? I, that he, he has a right to have eternal hell as bad as it is because he is the only one who is good. He is the only one who can decide what is right and fair. And number two, because he is absolutely righteous, he is not obligated to give us mercy. He's already done that through his son Jesus. But he's not obligated to um, give mercy to people who he doesn't want to. And that does not change his goodness. And I know that in our society we keep hearing, well, that's not fair. And um, I've struggled I, I, with that too. I got it. But I, so am I on the right track? Yeah, I think so. I think what you want to be able to do is substantiate your reasoning through your Bible, right? Yes. You need to anchor your reasoning through scriptural propositions so that your reasoning is supported by Bible, particularly when the furies of opposition come, even the opposition of your own fickle mind. So what you want to do is take your reasoning and go, what does the Bible say about God relative to his right to have a hell and a heaven? Does that make some sense? Of course it does. Right, because if we think this through, this here is a, a code of information about God, this book. Right, and all kind of people on the planet uh, affirm that there's a God, some kind of God here, there, everywhere, and they do it outside of this book. So what I'm, I'm going to just be arguing for in a moment is that a Protestant, uh, uh, an evangelical Protestant, we establish the grounds of our conviction about what we believe about God on the book. Now, the reason we do this is because this book, properly interpreted, doesn't change. And it actually is consistent across generation to generation to generation. So like we know that the composite of this book historically is now over 3,500 years old. This book, 1,500 years before Christ, 2,000 years after Christ. I want you to think about this for a moment. This is probably one of the oldest standing books on our planet. And this book has said the same thing for 3,500 years that it's saying today. And Protestants anchor all of their thoughts about God based on what God's word says. And and here's why you need to be able to do that. Because you can overthrow your own opinions on any given day that your fickle mind gets troubled about them. You can also be overcome by majority opinion, by threat, by fear, by reward on human person's levels. This is why Protestants were persecuted and killed, starting with uh, Luther, even before Luther, Zwingli, Knox, um, Wycliffe, Huss, when they all said to the law and to the testimony, if we don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in us, meaning that our authority is scripture on every point and opinion we have about God. Does that make some sense, you guys? Right. And so this is what makes us uniquely 
uh, Protestant Christians. You got Christians who don't believe that. Our Catholic friends actually hold to other traditions and other views, pseudepigraphas and, and second Deuteronomical codes and, and the traditions of men. Uh, Islam does the same thing. Greek Orthodox does the same thing. A lot of systems have all kinds of authorities that they use to formulate their opinions about God. Does that make some sense? All right. And so to the degree that their formulations correspond with the word of God, guess what? We agree with them. If your views and ideas about God are similar to what we read about God and the Bible over and over and over again says that God is holy, 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 holy and reverend is his name that God is righteous. God is a righteous God. He is a just God. So the attributes and qualities of God are replete in scripture, are they not? So, so follow what I'm doing here to, to help my sister over there. As she is actually formulating ideas about how to arrest her, her former critique around what she perceived was God being severe, She's trying to reorganize them around what she would consider an an attribute of God that would justify God as being the one who has the right to determine hell and heaven. All of that's fine, but more solidly what she has to do is anchor those attributes in scripture. Because until you go, well, the Bible says that God is the judge of all the earth. The Bible says he made heaven and hell. The Bible says that God decrees justice and righteousness. The Bible says that God has made a way of escape for sinners to overcome the condemnation of what the Bible says sinners are. So you notice what I'm doing is I'm qualifying my opinions around what the scriptures say, right? And here's the reason why. The church is still present to this moment because of the unchanging truth claims of Scripture. The Protestant church called this the perspicuity of Scripture. So let me explain that for you. The Scriptures are clear enough to define the attributes of God, and they are clear enough to explain God's ways. So when our present society, as Marlis is talking about, has been arguing about the severity of hell, Many of our churches collapsed under that argument. Do you know that? Many of us, Mr. Camping did the same thing. Mr. Camping abandoned eternal hell uh, as he waned and got over. This is for some of us insiders who've been knowing Mr. Camping for a long time, coming under pressure because Mr. Camping left the scriptures too. See, once he moved into date setting Adventism, he left the scriptures. And when you leave the scriptures, as Ecclesiastes puts it, it's like breaking the hedge. You must be bitten by the serpent and delusions are going to come. You, once you lose the parameters of scripture as the grounds of your authority, then you're wide open to the fickleness of the world and the fickleness of your own opinions. Does that make some sense? So now, if you and I agree that the final arbitrary and authority for all doctrine and practice is God's word, The only thing that you and I want to do now is make sure we rightly interpret it. Because you can actually be coming from a scriptural text and misinterpret that text. So to the degree we get scripture right, we get to go, well, why do you believe that hell is forever? 
Because the Bible says the soul that sinneth shall die and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal darkness where the worm does not die. So I'm giving you scripture in terms of the eternality. I'm giving you scripture in terms of the severity. And I'm sharing the scriptures with you from Jesus. He himself, the second person of the triune Godhead, said the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And woe unto those who offend God for such is the outcome for them. So if Jesus is our Messiah and he's our savior and we believe he's the personification of his word, then that's the highest authority we can have for the reality of hell. And it's codified. In other words, as painful as it may be to some people, I can quote Mark's gospel and prove that Jesus actually declared eternal fire with severity. Equal, equally um, opposite of that, Jesus declares that whosoever believes on him has eternal life and shall never perish. So we would see the equity of a future with God for all eternity in the positive sense as being just as equitable as a future without God in eternality for a constant that doesn't end under fury and judgment as well for those who reject God. We can see that. This has nothing to do with feelings. This has to do with what the word of God would say, right? So I'm saying that to help you actually um, Learn to defer your thoughts to scripture and that that will keep you because if you had eight billion people to agree with you, we could all be wrong. Anybody else who? OK, my sister, Glenn, this will be the last one. So today um, I've just um, survived the strike at Kaiser. <laughs> um, a couple of weeks ago, I was asked, was I going out on strike with them and la, 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 la. And I gave the paper and told her that I was going to pray about it. And when I was asked whether I was a couple of days ago, I told them I was going to come in because they needed to count and whatever. So um, I went in and everybody that came was not surprised that I was there. And management happened to come down and applaud me for being there. Thank you so much for coming. And before I knew it, out of my mouth was, no, thank God that I'm here because he said, he reminded me who I worked for. And you guys are the mediators. And um, he told me to come and take care of his people mm -hmm. who needed me there to register them. Mm -hmm. Nobody came except me. Mm -hmm. It was eerie. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thank the Holy Spirit for helping me through these last three days because I got to witness to the people that were there. And although we all feel some of the needs that the, the strikers were on, a lot of it is just selfishness, pride, and greed. Uh -huh. And that's what I shared with the uh, management. And they were so, one, it was two of them. One of them looked surprised, and the other one looked like, ah. Oh. So, All right. So yeah. what Glenda is supposed to be able to do is go, the Bible says. OK. 
So I'm going to actually tell you a little story about American Christianity, and then I'm going to close. Because what she is saying is not frivolous. Frivolous. You accidentally got it right. But it's important for you guys to know. So when, when the founding fathers established this nation, uh, one of the things that they had to wrestle through as a community of professing believers is whether or not that they would engage in protests and strikes against their government, against their companies. Because they actually understood that protests and strikes historically was an arm of Marxist socialist opposition to authority. You all need to know this. And so what the church, the Protestant church, taught generally as a rule in your um, in your Westminster Confession of Faith and in your three forms of unity is that the church should not be engaged in any form of uh, provocation and, and argumentation and hostility at a public level with its government. That that is not the way that the church deliberates the issues. The role of the church is to mediate in prayer, asking God to sovereignly move while the populace does what it is supposed to do. See, now this, this is going to kind of get back into the priesthood role because you can imagine if there's no priesthood mediating between the authorities and the common people, then all you got is conflict between the top and the bottom. That is your Marxist theory of the proletariat and the bougie. Did y'all get that? But if there's a third category called the mediatorial role of the church at the priestly level, then what the church is doing is occupying the position of knowing that, as you heard it earlier, there is a king over all of the earthly Lilliputians to whom the priesthood element of the church should be praying to the true king to subdue and quell the earthly kings. This is why I talk to you guys about the two, the tandem role of the church is prophetic and what? Now, guess who goes to, goes to jail? The, pre, the, the prophet does. So the prophet goes to jail. The priest goes to prayer. So, so when the church is done right, what we have are leaders who actually engage with the policy of our government at the uh, administrative and legislative levels. The church was always involved from the beginning at the moral and ethical level of policy making in our government. Once the government became more secular as it is today, it removed the word of God from being part of the equation of policy making. So now you got a society of mere rabble rousers, some in positions of power, the others under oppression, and they necessarily are going to go at it. What the Christian has to know is their calling in terms of how they will mediate that process. It just happened to be this time that Sister Glenda was compelled not to get involved at some uh, protest level and to stay in her position of working for her employer under God. And it granted an opportunity, listen carefully, to bear witness 
to the um, superiors at Kaiser that there's a position in the Christian church that doesn't absolutely ape and mirror every time we have grievances, we want to go on strike. In other words, the church is not your unions. Now, your unions have places. But most of the time, the unions are a bunch of crooks. They understand planned conflict. They understand the dialectic. They understand negotiation for more. They understand how to go behind closed doors and get billions of dollars from the top line and then give you as workers pittance and then get you stirred up every four or five years to get out and protest where you end up losing your job. But the people running those managements are still there. This is the way you actually increase a hostile divide between the wealthy and the poor by a mismanaged um, trade union system of crooks and thugs. So the church should not ape or silhouette the unions at that level. What that also means, because I'm going to close here, but I just wanted y'all to get this. There are seasons in which the unions will be right. But the church is not there to silhouette silhouette them. The church is praying for the righteous standing of the union to prevail both in government and in that business. There will be some Christians right right along with some Muslims and some Catholics and some Jews and some atheists and agnostics and everybody out there protesting because they're part of that union. Did that make some sense? They have to individually answer for their choice of standing up and speaking because they have a right constitutionally. But the body collectively as a whole, this is why I've I've held the line here at Grace for so many years. I've told you, we are not a political arm of the left or the right. You're not going to get everybody at Grace going out and doing some protests as if that's our calling. That is not our calling collectively. That is our calling individually. There will be some believers who are gifted who know how to navigate exercising our constitutional rights, one, two, three, and four. And we pray for them, do we not? Right. But the moment that the church takes up the arm of politics, it will lose the arm of the power of the gospel. And the next thing you know, you're just simply a political arm of the left or the right are irrelevant as most of your um, Unitarian churches are. A lot of your churches have just become empty, vanquished. Uh, The spirit of Ichabod is in that place. That is, God is not there because they're not operating out of the prophetic and the priestly role. Those roles must never be abrogated for a pursuit of economic stability. Like, I mean, our argument is Jesus. Our argument is the apostles. They didn't engage in those kind of public upheavals and protests. They continued establishing the kingdom of God in the proclamation of the gospel and praying. And they went to jail because many of our prophets told the king, you're wrong. You're wrong, Mr. President. You're wrong, Congress. You're wrong, House. You're wrong. The Bible says, am I making some sense? And, and, and they have suffered for many, gener- many millenniums now because they stood up. Knox stood up. John Bunyan stood up. They stood up and they suffered for the cause of Christ. 
But the church wasn't doing it as a arm of a political system. These are individual prophets who rise up. Uh, Wilberforce, bless his heart, was a major component uh, in Europe in busting up um, uh, a slavery. That's where the Europeans actually started um, liberating their slaves before the Americans did. Um, and so a, a lot of Christians were in politics at that time and they used the process to liberate as we ought to do. So you understand there's a tension here. Does that make some sense? But what, what you need to do next time, because the Lord's going to call you to that girl. Where my Bible at? <laughs> where my Bible at? Okay. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the brethren who will come out tonight. As we go now, we're asking for traveling mercies and good rest tomorrow. And then we're asking that you bless us with, um, with a vital um, pursuit of knowledge and an application of wisdom through that knowledge that is bundled up in the hidden riches that are in Christ Jesus, who is the treasure and wisdom and knowledge and fullness and assurance of our almighty God. May your spirit grant us that continued hunger, impulse, and commitment to um, exercising whatever gifts uh, he decides to severally divide unto us as he will. Once again, we're coming to you in the protection of the blood and the guidance of your son's righteousness. This we are praying for all of our households. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I'll